Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Matt Watson, CEO and founder of Origin, a financial wellness platform for the modern workforce that's raised over $70 million in funding. Matt, thanks for chatting with me today. Yeah, it's awesome to be here. Thanks for having me. Not a problem. So to kick things off, can we just start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, as you mentioned, I'm currently the uh, CEO at Origin. We're reimagining financial wellness at, at work. You know, wealth management for the vast majority of Americans, all wealth creation starts with their paycheck, and we're trying to make that an amazing experience. This is my second venture back company. So I've been doing this for way too long now. I started, you know, my entrepreneurial story when I think I was 12 years old. Both my parents are small business owners and they just instilled that in me and my sisters from a very young age. So started with the snow shoveling business when I think I was 12 or 13. And then I grew up as a competitive swimmer and I actually started a swim coaching business uh, before I went to college. And then from there, I, uh, I moved into traditional financial services after school. So I worked uh, you know, a corporate role at, at Citigroup and their bond trading division. And uh, as I was doing that, I just started hearing more and more about Silicon Valley. I grew up on the East Coast and tech was not a huge thing when I was growing up on the East Coast, but there was this you know, constant buzz of these amazing businesses being built in the San Francisco Bay Area. So I ended up you know, quitting my job, you know, in traditional finance. And uh, in 2015, I moved back to the Bay and got to work starting my first business, which we were fortunate enough to build and, and sell. And uh, now I'm working on Origin and it's been a blast. And it looks like that first company was Indio. Can you tell us more about what Indio did? Yeah. So Indio is a B2B SaaS company. We, you know, fall into the category of vertical SaaS. So build a solution for a very specific buyer for a very specific reason. So we sold a workflow management platform to commercial insurance agents. So, you know, when a commercial insurance agent is working with their clients, they have many of them, they have tons of data they need to collect. They have to collect payment, they have to get that out to carriers. We put that into a very easy to use system and had a lot of success with that. Were you happy with the outcome of that exit? Yeah, it was a significant exit. We returned you know, over a hundred times uh, initial capital to our early investors. So it was an outcome that I think was beyond what we had imagined when we started the business. You know, so you feel very fortunate to have been a founder of that company and to, to ultimately bring it to that, that outcome. I'm sure you learned a ton from that experience. If we had to choose one big thing that you learned and you took and applied to the company that you're running today, what would that be? Keep going. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I think that so much of startups are a game of mental fortitude. And it's really this function of how mentally resilient can you be while maintaining the energy that you have, you know, on day one when you start the business. And I think one thing that is certain in a startup is that you will have, you know, probably more tough days than easy days. And I think, you know, this is something I learned from my co-founder, you know, Mike Furlong, you know, when we were running the business, he had started another company before that was if you just stay consistent listen to your customer and keep building, good things happen. And I, I believe that to be true for you know all people at, at early stage startups. I see you were also the COO there at Indio, then obviously your CEO today. What's been the biggest difference as you've made that shift into a different role? They're very similar experience. I think, you know, at Indio is more operationally focused, you know, did a lot of sales there early as well. So 
Honestly, there hasn't been so much of a change for me in those two roles. I think, you know, if you're at an early company, and this would be, you know, what I say to all of our early employees, like you need that level of unbridled ownership and kind of get shit done mentality. And so I think a lot of the, you know, the people at my company today who are in a variety of roles have like a very entrepreneurial position. And so I really don't know that there's been a, a ton of difference between those two experiences. And a couple of other questions we'd like to ask. And the goal here is really just to better understand what makes you tick as a founder. First one, what founder do you admire the most and what do you admire about them? So I'll give you like an off the run answer to that question. So I read this book called Endurance, which is about Ernest Shackleton's expedition across Antarctica in like 1915 or 1920, something around there. And it was really interesting. I was reading this book, which was supposed to be about this adventure. And it really dawned on me that this guy was like an OG entrepreneur. So back in you know, the turn of the 20th century, you know, if you wanted to go and, and you know, do one of these trips, you had to go fundraise. So you'd go to like a government in Europe and say, hey, I'm going to go do this thing. Will you fund it? And we'll effectively claim whatever we're doing in your name. And so you know, he did that. He raised the money. He took the trip. And ultimately, with 25 guys, the boat got stuck in ice like, very early in the trip. And the story is about his journey over two years, ultimately getting all 25 guys back home without losing anybody and how he managed that process, you know, from start to finish and kept people like sane, happy, like engaged in the process of survival. And so I really like think that should be mandatory reading for anyone starting a company because it's amazing like what you can do if you're willing to just like keep going and stay positive. And it's a fun story because there's so many corollaries to like starting a business in terms of like fundraising. And then, you know, the outcome at that point in time was you would come back and, you know, you didn't exit your business, but you got to tell this story of the journey that you went on. And so that's a fun one for me. I think it's a good lesson on the on the business side of things. Yeah, that's one of my all-time favorite books as well. Um, I read that and then like a week later, they discovered the ship. I think that was like two years ago or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, so totally. That's even more exciting. It was, and it's like pretty well preserved because the water's so cold down there. Like there's no bacteria in it. Really cool. Yep, for sure. I was telling a friend that I really enjoyed that book and they asked me if I'd read River of Doubt. And then I, I just recently read that. Have you read River of Doubt? Oh, sounds like I need to. Oh, you have to read it. So it's about Teddy Roosevelt. Like after he had lost his second bid for the presidential seat, uh, he went and did this like gnarly adventure in the Amazon, like down the river that, you know, no one had ever explored before. And there's all this crazy stuff that happens, but it's, uh, it's very similar to endurance. If you liked endurance, I'm sure you're going to love this one as well. All right. Nice. Check that out. Doing research as well, I saw that there's uh, another founder in your family. So I believe you have a wife who's a founder. What's that like being married to another founder and just having you know that dynamic where there's two entrepreneurs and two founders in one household? Uh, you know, it's a good question. I mean, obviously a lot of startup talk in our house and she operates in a very similar industry to me. So, so many shared learnings on the journey. That business started out of the Indio office. So that was a lot of fun. You know, so there's just a lot of I think shared experiences when you're going through the process of starting a company. And as I've mentioned a number of times, like, yeah, I think this is true for investors as well. Sometimes like the thing that you need more than anything is just like a pat on the back, you know, and, and to, you know, share support. And that's what I try to do as an advisor or as an investor or for my friends who are in that position. And I think that, you know, I have that ability to give that and also receive it with, you know, someone who has, you know, started a business, obviously my wife in the same household. And then I've also had the opportunity to learn. Like I'm much more nuts and bolts oriented than she is in a lot of ways. She is like very, very strong on like the empathetic, you know, more emotional leadership side. And it's been amazing to me to see how like, you know, that superpower for her has unlocked so much. Her business has grown to like amazing heights. And I think it's in large part due to her ability to really connect 
you know, with the team and understand, you know, her client really closely. And so, you know, in many ways, I've, I've just learned a ton from her, you know, one way. Do you have any like funny rules in place? Like you can't talk about either of your company is, you know, after 8 p.m. or on weekends, anything like that? We tried that so many times. It's just, it's impossible. You can't get away from it, right? It's like, it's your life. Like, you know, it's your work. It becomes your life. And and sometimes it's a really good thing because it's incredibly exciting and motivating to share that. And then, yeah, sometimes it's too much. You got to kind of step away from the computer and say, hey, 24 hours, I'm not going to look at my email. We've tried to to say, all right, what are, what's our plan? But, you know, fruitless endeavor. Yeah, it sounds nice on paper, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Let's dive a bit deeper into the company now. So how we like to start this is let's talk about the problem. So I, I think it was pretty clear from you know, the early part of the discussion, the problem, but maybe if we can just dive a little bit deeper into that, how do you summarize the problem that you solve? Yeah, so like I said, I started my career working on Wall Street. And yeah, you know, when you're in a building like that and you look at what the company does, they offer pretty much any sort of financial advice and guidance that you can imagine. And the question that I would ask myself is, what would it look like or how would I bring that same level of professional money management to employees everywhere? And so that is what we aspire to do is to bring you know, really great guidance and execution to people who traditionally would be excluded from you know, high-end wealth management. And so when we talk to our clients, we say, look, we want to give your manufacturing employees, your everyday workers and employees the same level of advice that your CEO would get. And obviously there's different circumstances there, but ultimately what that means is delivering a strategy and a way to execute that strategy that makes people feel good about money. And money's a really complicated topic. We just did, uh, we were just putting some materials together and the average employee would rather talk about politics, infertility, and sex more than money. That's how much people hate talking about the stuff. And if we can do our part to make that easier and help them feel successful, we, we've done a great job. And then who are you selling to then? Is that selling into HR or who's actually buying it, the platform? Yeah. So, you know, HR has a number of different roles, right? They've got recruiting, they have learning and development. We're working with the benefits group inside of HR, you know, more broadly, the total rewards department inside of the group. So that's where we need, when we sell a product direct, that's who we go to. And then we also work with third parties. So benefit brokers are a big part of our distribution channel. Insurance carriers are as well increasingly 401k record keepers. So really looking at the full gamut of folks who are, who are interacting with, you know, the finances that an employee would face through the workplace. And then what's the split in terms of the customer base that you have today? Like what percentage comes from those partners and what percentage comes direct? It's a good question. It depends on how you, how we think about, you know, attribution, the number of users is much higher on the partnership side, probably 80, 20, but the revenue split is, is roughly equal. And then on the brand side or the company side that you're selling into, at what stage do you even have a benefits department? I'm, I'm guessing that's, you know, big, big enterprise if they have a specialized benefits team. People start to pick their head up on this stuff, probably around 100 people. At that point, you've probably got one person who's thinking about the experience of working at this company. You know, what does it mean to work at company X? How do we want to appear for them? How do we want to support these folks? Yeah, you know, there's a separate question, which is, is that a profitable client for our business? But I'd say around 100 is when, you know, benefits start to be a part of the equation because that's when you start to shift outside of we're a pirate ship startup into we're now recruiting people who might not be, you know, looking at us as the pirate ship and they want a stable place where they can come and earn a steady paycheck. And now we're competing against much larger organizations who are going to offer fuller suite of services. Our sweet spot is, you know, quite a bit larger than that. Call it, you know, a thousand to three thousand is where, 
you know, there's fully blown teams and strategies looking at these problems. And then from a sales perspective, looking through your website, I see a lot of stuff that's, you know, coming from the employee's perspective. There's a lot of content, you know, targeting employees. Is the general strategy there to get the employees to go and ask their bosses or ask their employers and say, hey, why don't we have this? Is, is that the general approach? We have not done a ton of direct to employee marketing to date, but, you know, our go-to-market motion is, you know, we, we talk to the employer about this, they contract with us. And then the next thing is like, how do you get people to use this, right? So how do you get that awareness out? And so there's, you know, pretty robust strategies to drive awareness. But one thing is, you know, the company announces the benefit and then an employee will go to the website and say, well, what is this thing? And so we need to talk to that employee to get them excited about ultimately, you know, working with us and ultimately, you know, managing their money through our platform. So we want to appear to be that very desirable destination for them when they've been made aware that this is something they have access to. And are you seeing that most teams are, you know, aware that this is a benefit that they can even offer? I guess when I think of benefits initially, it's, you know, healthcare, dental, vision, 401k, but this is, sounds like it's an entirely new category of benefit. Is that fair to say? In many ways, yes, it is. And I think that there's been, I'd say over the last five to 10 years, there's been a significant development of, you know, multi-billion dollar industries around that next level of benefits that are meant to make a company very competitive with respect to recruiting and retention. So you're seeing that, you know, in mental health, fertility, childcare, financial wellness is huge. These are the main thing. And if you think about it from an ROI perspective, you know, if you hire people, you want them to be able to focus at work and be productive. If they're spending, you know, hours a week thinking about their money, their childcare, maybe they're just depressed. Well, you've, you've hired someone who's not going to be super effective for you. And so I think they're, you know, particularly in the Fortune 500, but really the Fortune 1000 and sort of being the technology industry, there's been a recognition from, I would say, leadership across the C-suite that if they take care of the employee, they're going to get people to stay a lot longer. When you look at the cost of replacing that employee, it's, it's massive. And then they're going to be able to recruit better people as well. So it's definitely a new construct. I would say it's developing. It's probably a five to 10 year movement, but really these benefits are you know, focused on how do we help people just live better lives. And as, as I started off the call, you know, the vast majority of people want to keep that money is their number one driver of stress. And when you're stressed, you're twice as likely to be depressed. You're more likely to leave the company for really like small, you know, increases in comp. Uh, you're less productive in the workplace. And that's really where this industry has, has been born. When it comes to the market category, then how do you think about it? Are you a financial advisor? Is it a financial wellness platform? What's that actual market category? When we talk to employers, we're financial wellness platform. So that's where we sit and market and that's how we sell. Now, when we work with employees, there's different components to what we do. We want people to budget with us, file taxes with us, invest with us, create a will, create an estate plan. So we really want to be their entire destination for all things money management. So to them, we're really their wealth advisor, you know, and they're getting it at an amazing deal through their employer. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now back to today's episode. And is there a certain amount of money they need to make for it to make sense? Because I'm guessing that's you know why a lot of them don't have access to these types of services is you know, they probably just don't have enough you know, money at the end of the day you know to to justify putting into this type of stuff. So is there like a sweet spot for you on like how much salary the workers need to be earning for this to make sense? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it starts at a very low level. You know, if you're, even if you're making, you know, $35,000, $40,000 a year, it's really prudent for you to budget, understand your credit score, understand the debts that you have, and if there's better options for you to pay those down, all the way up into the 100K range. Maybe you're starting to invest for the first time. Maybe you're starting to family plan. You want to buy a home, have a child. Up until roughly two hundred, two hundred fifty thousand dollars $250,000, you know, we can be incredibly effective for you at a very, very small fraction of what you would pay to go and procure these tools from a traditional wealth advisor. So we, you know, now how is it possible? It's possible because we build, you know, a very robust piece of software that is effectively the combination of Mint.com, Wealthfront, TurboTax, increasingly estate planning in one central destination. So we're able to help folks do all these things without having to bring in a human necessarily to create an amazing financial plan and allow the employee to actually execute that financial plan. And so when you can do that, you open up the market from you know someone who, let's take the traditional model, let's say they have $200,000 and you're going to charge them 1% of their assets. That's like a typical fee. That means the business generating $2,000 for revenue. So they can put a financial planner against that at you know $150 an hour for six hours and they'll run that business at 50% margin. Now, obviously, if someone has ten thousand dollars, you know that doesn't make sense. So they have ten thousand dollars, they might only make a hundred bucks. So they can't put a human against that problem, and that's what the technology has allowed us to unlock at very, very low income levels. When you build these digital experiences to create that same financial planning product, you can now go after millions of households that previously were eliminated from traditional wealth management or financial planning services. I admire that nowhere on your website, at least that I can see the word democratization is used. I feel like that's like the buzzword that everyone would use to describe what you're talking about, because that's kind of what it is, right? You're taking the services that were normally reserved for people who had a lot more money and you're bringing people who don't have as much money. Is that a fair way to summarize it or think about it? That's exactly right. Yeah. And so, you know, we like to say we're reimagining. Yeah, I think that that's the new democratizing. <laughs> um, <laughs> It's democratizing. It got beaten into a pulp. So yeah, that's exactly right. Though you know, we're taking these services, we're leveraging technology to make them much more accessible to people, and bringing the price point down to something that is fantastic and and exciting for folks. Take us back to the first couple of big enterprise accounts that you landed. How did you pull that off? Because like you were talking about, you know, people don't like to talk about money. It's a sensitive topic, and I'm sure you know employers also don't know how to you know really insert themselves into that conversation with their workers. So. How did you convince those first big enterprise accounts to, to really just give you a shot? Yeah, I was actually talking to a friend last night on the phone. He's starting a business and he was just running into Stonewall, you know, with his early like sales conversations. And I was like, that's actually what you should expect. Like when you first bring this to market and talk to people, yeah, you know, you're going to have a lot of non-believers in what you're doing, but you have to have conviction in the destination. Like, where do we want to go? Like, if I can get there, I'm confident that many, many people will buy this. But I know today that the product is not there. I don't have the, you know, I don't have the SOC 2 certification. I don't have the look and feel of the software that people might expect. But your job is to really find, you know, a couple of those true believers who can work with you so that you can ultimately, you know, build a team and build a product that get you to that destination. And so for us, you know, I think that there was a lot of conviction on our end that, but wealth management, money management, it starts with your paycheck. It starts with your benefit. It starts with the equity you're receiving at work. There should be a service there that employers are providing to help employees actually make the most of what they're earning. And so that was conviction that I think we just held very deeply. And it just takes a lot of conversations to you know talk to early folks to see, is this a problem for your workforce? Do you believe this to be a problem? And then yeah, you're going to get a couple yeses. And then obviously you don't have great technology at that point, but you fight tooth and nail to provide an amazing service. Most of it's manual, but if you can still provide that great service, that's where the flywheel really starts. And then great, now I've got two or three really happy customers. 
would any of your colleagues be open to hearing about your experience with us? And, you know, of course they would if you delivered a great experience. And that's really where you start to get that traction. And as you get that traction, you're able to raise money and improve the product. And then the addressable market of people as that product expands and the price point comes down and it looks and it feels better is going to get much bigger. So I think that if you don't have conviction in that end result of if we did all of these things, would everyone want this? If you don't, if you're not hundred percent convicted in that, it's really tough to work through the muck of, you know, the nose initially. So that's how I've always thought about it. How long did it take you to start seeing initial traction to say, okay, there's for sure something here. Was that like three months, six months, 12 months, three years? How long did that take to start to feel really confident about what you're building? Yeah, well, we like cycle through a bunch of ideas. So I think you have to have kind of this ability to filter feedback has to be really strong where you're not lying to yourself. Like there's some things when you're talking to people and they're just like, no, like this just wouldn't work for us at any price point in any world. And so you have to be honest with that. But I think if you start to get some yeses and then it's a yes, but think, okay, well, what's the but? Is that something that we can overcome? Is it, is it a pricing objection? Is it a feature that needs to be built? When you start to see some of that, that's where I personally start to get excited because now we can have conversations. We've identified a problem. People agree on this problem. Maybe they don't agree on how it should be solved. But if you can get that alignment, that's where I think that for myself, that's where I start to get excited on something that we're going to spend a lot of time and resources and building. When I go on your website today, the messaging is super crisp, super clear, and I can you know, walk away understanding what it is that you do. A lot of websites I visit, I walk away just you know, wondering what the hell does this company do? But with you, it's very clear. Has your messaging always been this on point and this clear? Or what was the journey like to, to get to this point? I think it's a really good question. It's something I talk with my marketing team about a lot. I think it simplicity is, is absolutely critical in terms of explaining what you do. If it takes people more than you know two sentences to explain either the problem or the solution, they haven't distilled it down enough for a buyer, in my opinion. I would say that our goal to make money simple for employees has always been the same. Like that has been from day one of building this business. That's that's who we wanted to be. I think what's changed are you know the features that enable that vision and mission, and then of course the different go-to-market channels, whether it's direct or through partners or whatever. So. To answer your question directly, I think our mission as a company has been unchanged. And I'm a big believer in like, I want people to land on the website and understand instantly what this business does. I think that's really, really important given how short people's attention spans are. And you know, we should feel so fortunate that someone even went to our website. I certainly want them to leave understanding what we do. What about traction and adoption in the market? Are there any numbers that you can share that just highlight some of the growth that you're seeing today? Yeah, we're, you know, hundreds of thousands of users. We're growing, you know, multiples, uh, you know, every year at this point since we started the company. So we're really pleased with the trajectory, you know, of the business right now. I think we've unlocked some really significant distribution, which is really important. And the way that we look at, you know, the business from a nuts and bolts perspective. So moving away from the customer side and really thinking about the fundamentals of the company. You know, you can start a, a very similar business and go direct to consumer. I think that what we've seen is that the cost to acquire customers is just very, very high in a direct consumer environment. So by working with employers and bringing that employer lens to it, we're getting zero to negative customer acquisition costs with a product where consumer spend is you know many billions of dollars. So we're really pleased that you know some of the early hypotheses that we've had around the business model have been validated. And now we'll just continue to you know listen to our customers and try to build experiences that delight them. And um, you know ultimately the vision is for us to become you know the next Charles Schwab, where you know everyday individuals can come and and know that they're going to get the best financial advice and that they can actually do it with us as well. 
From a marketing perspective, what are you doing to rise above all the noise? You know, just on the show alone, I've talked to probably 10 or 15 different companies that are, you know, not tackling this specific benefit, but trying to create demand for a new benefit. And I think there's just a lot of noise. There's, you know, a lot of buzz around this and a lot of different vendors selling into it. So what are you doing from a marketing perspective to rise above all that noise? Yeah, I mean, I think in the benefit space, like your reputation is like shared very quickly. It's like somewhat of a tight knit community. And so what I always think about is just the customer. Like we just want to be the best at delivering great value to our customer. If we can do that, things will fall into place and the go-to-market really loosens up. I think in the early days when the product is not there, you have to compensate for that with just exceptional service. Maybe that prevents you from scaling a little bit, but I, I think a lesson that I've learned throughout my career is it's probably better to go a little bit slower and really nail that experience. That will enable you to grow much more quickly down the road. And I also think that that really serves to supercharge your marketing channels when you have a good reputation and you're really proud of the product that you put in front of your clients. I think in a vertical SaaS company, so like my first business and or an industry that is yeah, somewhat vertical in nature, I guess, like our buyers are like in very tight-knit communities, that reputational component is really critical and that will really help the marketing messaging. As I mentioned there in the intro, you've raised over 70 million to date. What have you learned about fundraising throughout this journey? Yeah, I mean, the fundraising market as we've, you know, navigated it at this company is has been both, you know, euphoric at times and also dismal at times. And I think as a founder, you really need to understand where your business is with respect to the current environment that you may need to raise capital into. So you want to be obviously opportunistic and maximize value for your shareholders. You also may have to change the way you operate the business depending on what that environment is. So, you know, today, if you're in the market to raise money, I think it's loosened up a little bit from where it was a few months ago, but it's certainly nowhere near what it was, you know, 2020, 2021, which I think was, you know, beyond euphoric. But even going back to, you know, 2015, 2016, 2017, I think we're south of there right now. I wouldn't say we're in like a normal environment. So I think you've got to know the field that you're playing on and what sport you're playing. So, you know, you can't show up to a hoops game with a soccer ball. Like you have to understand who you're talking to, what their state of mind is, what their interest in investing, you know, right now may be and in what terms they're, you know, likely to be offering. And if that doesn't align, it's going to be really hard to fundraise. So I think it's just about being brutally honest with yourself, where your business is, what the environment looks like, and then making sure that you capitalize on the opportunity when it exists. And when the opportunity doesn't exist, you're going to have to change your sales and you know, adjust the company in the direction to make sure that you're able to put the company in a position to fundraise, you know, when you need to. I'm happy to hear you say that. You know, it seems like it's turning around a little bit. And that's consistent with a lot of the conversations I've been having with founders just you know, in, in our company and on the podcast as well. Everyone has been saying like, it seems like things are getting better. Like 12 months ago when we were doing these interviews or even six months ago, there were some hard conversations with founders and they were just talking about what a brutal environment it is. So glad to hear just uh, another data point here that things are looking a little bit better. Yeah, totally. But I say that and I think that the lesson that I have learned is you want to build a resilient business. So like anti-fragility, like this has been the year to build that into your company. So, you know, if you're in a business where spend has retracted, well, this has been the year to really say, what would this business look like if we had to operate in an environment where spend was down? Okay, well, where is other spend that we can move to and how do we develop a business model around that? And I think that, you know, investors are really excited to see those types of changes. So I think even in a downturn, there's an opportunity to make a business more resilient. And I think that's what, you know, what really good founders are thinking about right now. What were some of those like wartime measures that you put in place or, you know, ways to make it, the business more resilient? Can you share any examples of like specific things that you did? 
Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, for us, you know, we extract, you know, the vast majority of revenue through the employer. And when the market, you know, turned, it was like, okay, like that may not grow as quickly as we needed to. So what does this business look like? You know, in an environment where benefits spend is maybe not as aggressive as it was you know, 12 months ago. And so we very quickly decided that like, that's okay. We actually, we actually don't care, you know, if we can go and build tremendous services. So the ability to invest, the ability to file taxes, the, bil- the ability to create a will or a trust, then we're okay because we have tremendous distribution. And if we do a really good job for individuals, they're going to want to do those things with us. And so that was really a function of our mission and our vision is unchanged. We want to be the preeminent destination for money management for mass market and mass affluent. How we extract revenue can change. And you know, that's great. And so we put a lot of work into that and that's shown like tremendous result. That probably wouldn't have happened if the market didn't change. We would just kept chugging along. And so when I think about that, I'm actually really excited because we have injected this anti-fragility into our business model where I actually don't really care if the market comes back or it doesn't. People still spend billions of dollars every year on core financial services. They're mandatory services. So where we extract that revenue is not particularly important. We know that it's going to come because we've gone through the journey of improving our business model. So that's probably the biggest example that we've experienced directly at Origin. Let's imagine that you were starting the company again today from scratch. Based on everything that you've learned throughout this journey, what would be the number one piece of advice that you'd give to yourself? Just like 100% focus on the right people. Getting the right people on board is undoubtedly the single highest leverage thing that you can do when you're starting a business. You know, coming back to the Shackleton thing, I'm sure that you have heard about like his famous job posting for his Antarctica trip was men wanted for hazardous journey, low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness, safe return, doubtful, honor and recognition in the event of success. And so it's like, that is, that's like the greatest thing of all time. Like that is what a startup is. It's going to be exciting. It's going to be very difficult. And I think getting the people on board who not only are not intimidated by that, but are looking for that at this point of their career, at this point of their life is really, really important. Obviously, you know, having the requisite skill set is important as well. But I think that that is, is something that maybe was a little bit lost in the last run up where you had a lot of people who didn't necessarily, you know, sign up for that type of a role. And, uh, you know, now I think that, you know, my learning, you know, through 10 years of doing this now is that like, that's number one, you've got to get the right people on the boat. When you do that, magic happens. And, you know, look, there's going to be twists and turns. There's going to be pivots. There's going to be upset clients. There's going to be people who don't work out, you know, but if you have the right people on board, it all is, is just so much easier. Final question for you here. Let's zoom out into the future. And I know you've touched on the vision there a little bit, but let's go a bit more detailed. What's that big picture vision that you're hoping to build? You know, paint a picture for us for what the company is going to look like in like three to five years from today. You're managing your money at origin. Brett Stafford's managing his money with us. Like everyone is managing money with us because we deliver an easier experience that costs a lot less and consolidates all of your financial needs into one experience. So I think a lot of people spend a lot of time thinking about this stuff. I don't want people to think about it. I want them to come to us and it's just done and it's easy and it's at a price that cannot be beaten. Um, And I think we're doing a really nice job getting that out into the world. Amazing. Love the vision and love the approach that you're taking. We are up on time, so we'll have to wrap here. Before we do, if there's any founders listening in that just want to follow along with your journey as you build and execute on this vision, where should they go? They should go to our website. We have a ton of big stuff coming out through the back half of this year. They can always email me as well, matt at useorigin.com. Love talking to other folks about this stuff. Awesome. Matt, thanks so much for taking the time. Really appreciate it and really enjoyed this conversation.
Likewise, thank you. All right, keep in touch. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode. 